There was a lot going on in the 1960s. The civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, anti-war protests. It was a tumultuous time. Meanwhile, administrators, deans, and members of the Board of Visitors at prestigious all-male colleges sat in their quiet offices as the protests raged on outside. And they started really asking themselves, are we failing to keep up with all this social change by not admitting women? I'm your host, Giovanna D'Oliveira, and in this episode of Gritty Women, we'll take a closer look at the turbulent 60s and how it paved the way for co-education. One of the women I spoke to was Betty McGee. Betty was actually at UVA before it co-educated. She had transferred from Mary Washington into UVA's School of Education in 1969, and she witnessed the university undergo significant changes before the undergraduate women arrived. People stopped wearing coats and ties. The fraternities stopped being so self-centered and started going downtown Charlottesville and teaching children, you know, what we would call the big sister, uh, big brother program today, fraternities started going and helping disadvantaged students learn to read. So there was a huge change in from being uptight, very selfish young men to uh, being more socially aware. And all of these things were because it was the 60s. Um, So, you know, it wasn't Haight-Ashbury, it wasn't San Francisco, but it was changing. Betty describes small changes that show a loosening of social norms on college campuses and a greater feeling of responsibility towards others. But these smaller changes are the ripple effects of a larger and more powerful disruption occurring across colleges in America. There was one big thing that many college students, especially male students, were very, very unhappy about. You probably guessed it. It's the Vietnam War. I guess I would say I was against the war. I mean, at first I, I, uh, I was against the war because I didn't want to go to Vietnam. <laughs> I had a personal interest in that. You're hearing Daniel Sullivan, who graduated from UVA Law School in 1970. His audio is provided by the UVA School of Law. And I had um, the misfortune that even though I'd gone to law school because it was an exemption after my first year, they had eliminated that exemption, so I was fair game. And I also won the lottery. My... Uh, my birthday was, it's the only lottery I've ever won in my life, but September 14th was the first date drawn. So I was, I was uh, fair game for uh, being drafted. Um, so I had that personal stake of uh, being unwilling to participate in the war. But I was beginning to develop a more political consciousness that the war was a symptom of something far more troubling. There was already a lot of discontent regarding the draft. The Selective Service called the names of all men ages 18 to 26, which made 27 million American men eligible to be drafted. But as Daniel mentioned, discontent grew even stronger on April 30, 1970, when President Richard Nixon announced that he would be sending troops to Cambodia and therefore expanding the war. At this point, the male students at UVA decided to plan a strike. And then, just a few days later, on May 4th, something devastating happened. What the investigators have to determine then is whether indeed there was a sniper and whether the guard was justified in firing its weapons, or whether, as some people here believe, 
The guard, under the pressure of a rock-throwing attack, panicked and fired its weapons indiscriminately, killing four people. Ike Pappas, CBS News, at Kent, Ohio. On May 4, 1970, the Ohio National Guard fired into a crowd of protesters at Kent State University, killing four unarmed students. This was referred to as a Kent State Massacre, and it rocked the nation. I was, uh, it was, they were on television, they were covered in great detail, and we had people, commentators on television like Walter Cronkite that were, we believed, they only told the truth. There was no such thing as fake news back in those days. So it was, it was horrendous, it was terrible what happened at Kent State. So I was outraged, just like all the students were. I mean, I didn't run out in the street and get hammers and nails and throw them at cars that didn't deserve to have problems thrown their way. But I thought that is like the, the last nail. That was Charles Vasily, UVA Law School, class of 1970. The Kent State Massacre was the impetus for something called May Days. May Days was a week-long strike at UVA that began on May 6, 1970. Thousands of anti-war protesters marched up to President Edgar Shannon's university mansion on Cars Hill. Classes were canceled and several students were arrested as the movement to shut down the university grew. Professors went on strike and Shannon, Edgar Shannon, was president of the university. That's Betty again. He walked with the students down University Avenue protesting the Vietnam War. He was right in the middle. The legislature wanted him to clamp down on the students and faculty that were against the war, and the students wanted him to stand up against the war. And it wasn't until he passed away that I realized he was a World War II pilot. He was a Navy officer, and he stood up with the students. Public opinion really shifted against the Vietnam War, especially after Kent State. Both at UVA and across the nation, these anti-war protests were mostly led by young people. You had big national groups like the SDS, or the Students for a Democratic Society, organize anti-war protests on college campuses. Young people led other protest movements too, like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC, which organized sit-ins and boycotts during the Civil Rights Movement. But when it comes to the student activism at May Day specifically, there's something that really stood out to me. The evening before the strike on May 5th, the student council passed nine demands. One of them was to increase black enrollment at the university, and the other one was to admit women on an equal basis to men. Though the men at UVA focused on the Vietnam War, they were also thinking about how to make society and their university more inclusive. And this meant admitting women. So let's take a step back. We talked about the anti-war movement, which was a major, major social movement among young activists, especially on university campuses. But another movement that was really central to the 60s was, of course, the women's rights movement. To learn more about the origins of the movement, I had a conversation with Professor Melody Barnes, co-director for policy and public affairs at the Democracy Initiative. To even understand what was happening in the early 70s, it's not only important to consider the 60s, but also perhaps even go back to the 50s. 
And when you think about the 1950s and the fact that we had a post-World War II America, that America in many ways was feeling quite confident. Uh, you know, we've conquered fascism around the world. It's the rise of America as a superpower, the rise of uh, uh, income for uh, many Americans. There was a growing middle class access to resources, to a way of life that many people hadn't imagined. People had cars, people were taking vacations, people were feeling content in many ways, at least on the surface. But what we started to see as we come out of the Eisenhower administration, out of that presidency, the immediate post-war period, was what had just had been bubbling beneath the surface, which was a great deal of discontent among those who had felt that they had not been able to fully participate in all that America had to offer. Troops that had returned, that uh, men of color, who we fought fascism overseas and we are coming home to significant levels of discrimination. Women who had been active in the war effort when men were away that all of a sudden found that they were, in many cases, no longer needed in the workforce um, because men were returning and wanting those jobs. As a result, you had uh, books being written like uh, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. You know, what is this thing that so many women are feeling that they can't quite put their finger on and describe uh, because after all, I've got everything. I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I've got kids, I've got my nice house in suburbia, at least for white, for white women, um, but I'm really unhappy. And certainly African-American women, not only dealing with issues of gender discrimination, but also race discrimination. So again, all of this was churning and starting to be talked about uh, in various quarters across the United States. And then civil rights legislation passed. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which almost on, as a fluke, quote unquote, included women and its anti-discrimination measures, the Higher Education Act, greater access to higher education, and efforts to, to grow the promise of those pieces of legislation. So Title IX passes in the early 1970s to op open opportunity in higher education to women. I'm going to hit pause for a second and explain some of these new laws. Professor Melody Barnes mentioned that the Civil Rights Act included women as a fluke. What she's referring to is the fact that women were actually not initially supposed to be included in the law. So to give some background, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibited discrimination based on race, religion, color, or national origin in public places, schools, and employment. Congressman Howard Smith didn't like this. He did not support civil rights, and he wanted to kill the bill or at least delay its passage. So he decided that if he introduced sex into the bill, then Congress wouldn't get enough votes for it to pass, or it would at least take a lot longer. So he came up with what he thought was an ingenious idea and snuck sex into Title VII of the Act, which prohibited employment discrimination. Except his plan didn't work out. The bill passed and President Johnson signed it into law. 
The other law that Melody Barnes references is Title IX, which actually came about after coeducation in 1972 as part of the educational amendments. Title IX said that higher educational institutions receiving federal funding would lose this funding if they were found to be discriminating against women in any capacity. Discrimination can encompass the way universities address issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault on their campus, the ways athletic programs are managed, and so on. Title IX became law two years after UVA's coeducation, which reinforces the idea from the previous episode that UVA chose to admit women right when the laws were starting to really crack down on gender discrimination. Okay, back to the interview. There were important pieces of of literature that were being produced and women reading them, um, talking about them among themselves. Um, But those things were also starting to affect business. Um, They were starting to affect pop culture um, and the way that men and women responded to what was going on. So, for example, I don't know if you're familiar with the show. It's an old one, um, but the show Bewitched. That's wonderful. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Now, I am a witch. A real, house-haunting, broom-riding, cauldron-stirring witch. So, you know, you've got suburban family, you know, husband, wife, and he's in the advertising agent uh, business. She's a suburban housewife who's got these magical powers that he doesn't want her to use Um, but she is constantly asserting herself in use of those powers. To the average family that flips on their television, you know, it's a cute sitcom um, that was highly popular and lasted a number of years. When you read about that sitcom and what was also going on in Hollywood, there is a subtext and another message being sent about women that were being, in that instance, women that were being prevented from using all of their gifts and all of their powers, but pushing back against the cultural boundaries that had been set for them. So you had things like that that were taking place in in broader culture. And then, as I said, uh, women asserting themselves in the civil rights movement, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, um, Daisy Bates, the list goes on, um, and their leadership roles. They're not necessarily popularly known today when people talk about you know, Martin Luther King and others, but these were women who were significant leaders of that movement um, and similarly take, obviously taking their place in terms of leadership in the feminist movement um, of that time. The women's rights movement in the United States is incredibly comprehensive, but a key event to focus on is the suffrage movement, which began in the mid-1800s and really began to pick up steam in the early part of the 20th century. In 1920, decades and decades after the suffrage movement began, Congress finally passed the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. Of course, Jim Crow laws made it incredibly difficult for Black women to be able to exercise this right. The fight for women's equality continued throughout the 21st century, but in the 60s, it took on a new shape in what is commonly referred to as second-wave feminism. This form of feminism emerged as different women began to feel unsatisfied with their position in society. This included the suburban housewife referenced in Betty Friedan's work, who yearned to feel fulfilled. 
who wanted more in her life than to just be a mother and a wife. But it also included women working in leftist organizations like SDS or SNCC. We often think of the new left as one cohesive force, with all organizations being on the same page. But this is far from true. The same men leading anti-war protests were the ones telling women to get their coffee for them. And some of the same men organizing sit-ins and civil rights marches believed women's responsibilities should be limited to handling their paperwork. There's a famous quote by Stokely Carmichael. He infamously said, The only position for a woman in SNCC is prone. So women were not always welcome, even in these so-called liberal groups. And the women's liberation movement sought to raise consciousness around these issues and push for change. Betty Friedan, Polly Murray, Shirley Chisholm, these were just three of many women who founded the National Organization for Women, which they envisioned as an NAACP for women. So women were creating their own spaces and assuming positions of power in these groups. What is interesting, though, is the way that the women's rights movement also impacted men and how society thought of masculinity. Many young men realized that they could all benefit from the women's rights movement. And I think no one explains this better than Betty Friedan herself. In my opinion, the other half of women's liberation movement is the boys. They are saying no to that brutal, sadistic, tight-lipped, crew-cut, you know, Prussian, uh, big muscle, you know, Ernest Hemingway, uh, kill bears when there are no bears to kill, and, and, and napalm all the children in Vietnam and Cambodia to prove that I'm a man, you know, and be dominant and superior to everyone concerned, and never show any, any softness. Well, these boys that are wearing their hair long are saying, no, I don't have to be uh, all that uh, crew cut and tight-lipped. Uh, I don't have to be dominant and superior to anyone. I don't have to have big muscles because there aren't any bears to kill. I don't have to, you know, kill anybody to prove anything. I can be tender and I can be sensitive and I can be compassionate. And uh, I can admit sometimes that I'm afraid and I can even cry. And I am a man and I am my own man. And that man who is strong enough to be gentle, that is a new man. The women's rights movement had an impact on the public opinion of the UVA student population. And remember that the student council during May Days in 1970 demanded that UVA admit women on an equal basis to men. Another student demand was to increase black enrollment. While UVA was preparing for the integration of women, it was also undergoing the process of racial integration. Throughout the 50s, UVA accepted a handful of black students into their graduate and professional schools, but African Americans were still barred from enrolling into the college. In 1959, Roy Willis, a student in the engineering school, successfully petitioned UVA to allow him to transfer into the College of Arts and Sciences in 1961. Roy became the first black student to live on the lawn. In many ways, the agenda of the women's rights movement occurred on the heels of the civil rights movement. Racial progress, although slow, made the exclusion of women at the university appear anachronistic and outdated. Some also believed that coeducation could expand the size of the black student population at UVA. A Princeton study referenced in the Cavalier Daily stated that coeducation could attract more qualified white and black students, both male and female. 
I guess a rhetorical question, would I have gone to UVA without women? And I think the answer to that would have been no. That's Blake Morant, one of the few black students from the class of 75. His wife, Paulette, who we'll hear from later, was in the class of 74. I mean, that was one of the questions I got when I applied for the ROTC scholarship, was why aren't you applying to, to West Point? You know, you have all of these qualifications and credentials, you should. And I didn't have the heart to tell the selection committee, I'm not going to West Point Bank, y'all don't have women, I'm not going there. So I just basically said, well, you know, West Point is for sciences. I'm a, I'm a liberal arts guy, so that got me out of it. Although coeducation helped to attract more black students, UVA remained a predominantly white institution with little racial diversity. Paulette, who's Blake's wife and who's also black, was in the class of 74, and she speaks to some of the racial dynamics on grounds at the time. I'll start out by speaking on my own behalf or about myself that I personally did not suffer any indignity from anybody. I did not get insulted. Right, right. It may be like you say now, people, we are aware of things that are sort of under uh, understated and you realize, oh, that person's not very aware of or not very knowledgeable about uh, racial differences. Uh, But I think that there was curiosity about black students, but then there were the situation too was that the majority of the Caucasian students really didn't have to have a black friend unless they wanted to. So that's kind of an interesting thing. You could go through all all four years of UVA and not have a black friend and come out to be just fine, at least in your opinion, you know. But we, as the small group of black students of 100 in my class and probably a little over 100 in Blake's class, I think a lot of us felt like, oh, in order to be a success at UVA, we cannot just talk to each other. We must talk to everybody. We must get out there and join whatever this is. And it's not always the easiest or the most fair, but that's the way it is to try to make integration work because integration sometimes falls on the uh, group that's considered the new group to make it work. And that has happened to our parents. It has happened for generations. I still think a lot of, of our Caucasian friends or uh, acquaintances were still curious of, you know, what is this uh, black power all about? And sometimes we'd say, hey, we don't know. We're, we're trying to study it, too, you know, or something. Or what is it? Some, you, you get a rhetorical question. What does the black community want? And you, as an individual black student who's 19 or 20 years old, say, I cannot speak for the whole community. Only Martin Luther King can do something like that. And how many people disagreed with Dr. King, you know? But it was that there was curiosity there, and but no set... Um, program of having a discussion the way you might have today. One of the major incidents that occurred when we were undergraduates was the investigative journalism done by the Cavalier Daily, and it discovered that there were a number of senior administrators at the university who were members of this exclusive club. It was Farmington, and uh, that club at that time did not accept people of color. As a matter of fact, it was it was coded explicitly. It was racially exclusive. I don't know if it was also with regard to Jewish people, but I know it was mm-hmm. that way for people of color. The CD did this huge investigative piece that brought out major individuals at the university and listed their names. 
And I always tell people this. Sometimes for, for a culture to shift, for people to grow, you sometimes need a major cataclysmic moment to really let people know that this is a problem and it has consequence. When the Cavalier Daily published that, it was all of this consternation that came out with regards to these individuals who were teaching all of, they were t- had students of color in their class. Some of them were association deans, which were advising people of color, and they were a member of this club. One by one, they started dropping out like flies. You know, they started dropping out like flies. By the way, Farmington Country Club also excluded Jewish people. Ann Brown was involved with the Cavalier Daily throughout her time at UVA, and she discusses the context of the Farmington piece. There was a a healthy tension and something of an adversarial relationship between the Cavalier Daily and the faculty and administration. And um, this was, it, it really reached ahead with Frank Hereford, who became president uh, right after Edgar Shannon. I graduated in the last year of Edgar Shannon's presidency. Um, I actually served as a student member of of the selection committee, but it was pretty clear to all of us students on that committee that we weren't gonna have much say. He had sort of been, uh, the perception among the students was that Frank Hereford was kind of the preordained next president. He was the provost of the university at the time. And um, there were a lot of alumni very unhappy with Edgar Shannon because he had not clamped down on the student war protests, the strike, all of that. And there, were, there had been a lot of, of frustration with Edgar Shannon and a perception that he was too liberal. And Frank Hereford was viewed as a more conservative um, successor. And Frank was a member of Farmington. Edgar Shannon was also a member of the all-white Farmington Country Club, but he withdrew his membership in 1974. Frank Hereford, on the other hand, refused to withdraw his membership, even after protests from faculty and students. Black faculty members were particularly outspoken on this issue because they believed that Hereford's refusal to withdraw his membership was hurting the university's efforts to recruit more black students. UVA, even today, faces this issue with black recruitment. Black students make up not even 7% of the student population. Farmington challenges a story of progress that we usually tell about the 60s and 70s. Even during a period of increased democratization and inclusivity, clubs that were racially and religiously exclusive could still exist and thrive. UVA's decision to admit women occurred in a very specific political and social moment. The politics of the 1960s exposed to the world an unequal and fractured society, one that needed to be reconstructed and reimagined. Following the liberal agenda of the 60s, coeducation signified a further expansion of rights and benefits to groups who were previously excluded from opportunities in society. These benefits were not enjoyed equally, as black women still continue to face more discrimination than white women. Still, UVA's decision to co-educate represented the logical next step towards a culture of inclusivity. And UVA wasn't the only college impacted by the politics of the 60s. 
At the undergrad level, Gale admitted women in 1968, Princeton became fully coeducational by 1969, and Dartmouth admitted women in 1972. In the next episode of Gritty Women, we will talk to some alumni and finally learn what it was like for women when they arrived. In this episode, you heard from Betty McGee, Melody Barnes, Anne Brown, Blake Morant, and Paulette Morant. A big thank you to Mary Garner McGee from WTJU for her editing work on this episode. You heard the voices of Daniel Sullivan and Charles Vasley, whose audio can be found at UVA Law School's exhibit on May Days. To learn more about May Days and student activism at UVA, visit their website, maydays.law.virginia.edu. Audio from protest movements courtesy of Democracy Now! and the Kino Library. Audio on the Kent State Massacre was provided by CBS Evening News. Footage from the show Bewitched was published by the Classic TV Rewind Channel. Lastly, you heard Betty Friedan's speech published by the CBC. The music in this episode is Palms Down and Two in the Back from Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast is a member of the Virginia Podcast Collective. Thank you for listening.